to watch the show. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's Saturday night. That means this is Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. That's Steve over there hey. in his hidden location. Tonight we have a special guest, the creator of Matilda, The Forces of Evil versus the Third Grade, Ted Wally. Say hello to everybody, Ted. What's up, guys? Hey, Ted. So, before, before we get into any questions, we want to tell everybody that the book is available digitally through Amazon.com and Comixology. You can also get uh, a printed version directly through Ted's website, VoodooMaverick.com. I'll put up a graphic with all those links, and all the links are in the description. Yeah, Google my name and shows right up first thing. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about the book, Ted? I've read it. Steve's read it. Uh, well, we both uh, are really enjoying it. Well, thank you. It's uh, kind of interesting because uh, I just finished uh, doing the pitch bible for it, and in the pitch bible, uh, you got to kind of have uh, got to be really kind of focused, have your ducks in a row, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and have your head wrapped around the concept of it. But one of the things that we had to think of was the elevator pitch <laughs> of what it is. And so the elevator pitch is uh, Matilda is basically um, Hellboy meets Hit Girl. And uh, I'm sorry, what? Uh, yep, yeah, I can get it. It's Hellboy that. meets Hit Girl, but uh, in the philosophical sense, uh, Matilda is about people, people's right to choose. Um, some people live their lives with others kind of manipulating, planning every aspect, every facet, every detail of what they're going to be. Uh, pageant children come to mind uh, where you have an outside force that manipulates everything. Matilda is one of those people with the exception that her life is being manipulated by her father who is uh, Lucifer, the Lord of all Judeo-Christian help. And the story is about her finally making choices for herself, uh, choosing to repent for her past crimes, uh, choosing to be the person that she wants to be, choosing her own destiny rather than the destiny that her uh, father has picked out for us. And uh, the stories themselves are about... Uh, Matilda, who is the leader of Lucifer's armies, she is uh, been destined to lead them in a final battle with hell, and she discovers in an epiphany moment a kind of critical, fatal flaw in the plan and doesn't agree with it, so uh, she makes a deal with the other side to get out of hell. And uh, but she has to learn about the human condition. She has to stop her father from destroying everything, and uh, she has to pass the third grade. She fails any of those tasks, back to hell she goes to face the music. Wow. Now, now this deal she cut with the other side that has uh, brought her into contact with some rather interesting folks. Yeah, um, as she's discovered, since she's the most evil of beings, and. Uh, was protected by her father in hell because she's the linchpin to all of his plans. Uh, she's made enemies both in hell and in heaven as well. Heaven doesn't like her either because uh, she's the most evil of beings. What is she doing getting out of hell? And plus, I play it 
in the terms of depending on what you read and what you subscribe to, but a lot of scholarly texts that I've read uh, has referred to that there were several revolutions in heaven, and uh, most of them center around the angels in heaven taking offense to what God uh, showers uh, his or hers attention on, and so they're upset about this a lot as well because she got this really sweetheart of a deal and she's the most evil of beings, and so yeah, they're, they're out to get her too. Right, and um, she also, as as most a lot of children do in, in this particular type of mythology, has her own guardian angel, <laughs> who, who, who himself is a, a bit of an <laughs> unlikely character. Well, yeah, the, her guardian angel is um, referred to as a, a fallen angel. And, uh, again, depending on what you subscribe to, most fallen angels are referred to as angels that have lost faith. And uh, he has lost faith, and uh, he has been assigned as... His, this is his last chance to regain his faith. And uh, so his charge has been Matilda. And uh, in his name is Baker, and in his... Losing of faith, he drinks, smokes, uh, is very vague with the intel that he shares with her. He, um, she can see him, he can see her, and uh, they can talk to one another. And uh, he's a little late with the information sometimes, kind of misses protecting her, but he, he winds up working it out in the end. They're trying to work it out. They have a very contentious relationship of uh, they don't like one another, but it's because what they will eventually realize is that they're they're both on this they're both very similar. They both have lost faith in what they had in and they're looking for their faith in things to be restored. And faith not necessarily being of a religious sense of just a sense of well being. What what am I? What is my purpose? I want I need that restored. Right. Yeah. So they're very similar. That's uh, that's something I noticed a lot in the in the interactions in book one is is that they they are very similar and they they Good. do not like each other. But job well, thanks. And uh, but yet they seem to have kind of this, there's this hint of this begrudging respect already in in the early part of the book. Yeah, uh, kind of not really in the early parts. They they uh, not to. Re- spoil anything in the future, but uh, yeah, it starts out with they really just don't get along because he feels like he's been given an ultimatum, and most people don't like having all the way. It gets your hackles up when you're told to do something and shut your mouth and do your job, and he, or else, and he doesn't like that, so he's, he's approaching the task and taking his resentment of the task and his resentment for what the host is putting him through uh, out on her. And he's not being told who she is. He knows she's a big mucky muck because she can see him and no one's supposed to be able to see your guardian angel. So right. he can talk to her. So he knows that he's being manipulated. That kind of takes him off even more. And her <coughs> resentment is coming from 
she's used to being able to do whatever she wants, however she wants. You don't get it. You don't do it. You don't jump when she says jump, and she needs a muddle on you. She can't do that in the eighth, uh, in the third grade. She can't do that as an eight-year-old, and she's hard-headed and stubborn because she's used to running everything. So she's taking her resentment of having to start off at the bottom out on him and anyone that's like trying to help her because why, why would she listen? She's not used to listening. She never had to listen. Right. And on the other side, Hell has sent their own little emissary who's uh, rapidly becoming the star of the book. <laughs> uh, well, not yes and no. Um, Bella is... Uh, Bella the Undeady Bear is, uh, to, our, to our eyes, <coughs> a lot of the demons of hell and the angels in, uh, of heaven, they can't be viewed um, by mortals because uh, basically your mind can't handle it. So they wind up taking on an appearance that your mind projects uh, that you can handle. In his case, it's to everybody he appears as this stuffed panda bear toy. And, uh, but reality, he's a demon that he saw her as she was escaping hell and latched, attached himself to her uh, in a metaphysical sense. So she can't dispatch him. And so to everybody, she's lugging around this stuffed bear. And But reality is, is this stuffed bear is one of the many demons in hell that is uh, trying to collect the bounty on her head that was placed by her dad. And... Uh, Get her back to hell, so she can do her job. And speaking speaking of bounties, this is like the penultimate example of sibling rivalry. Uh, in a way, yeah. And I play on that with a lot of the a lot of the, the different factions that don't like her. Mm -hmm. um, it's the in hell and in heaven. Most scholars point to different class existence. Uh, different levels. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of rivalry, uh, and in a lot of cases, it's referred to as sibling rivalry because they refer to one another as brothers and sisters. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of the resentment from the demons from hell come from that whole standpoint of she was handed everything, and you know, I don't think she deserves all that. I could do it. Just as bad, if not worse. So it's part of that old stereotypical power struggle. But yeah, there's a lot of sibling rivalries that I play on it as well. Excellent, excellent. Now you mentioned the pitch bible. Um, what what is your plan for that? Well, a pitch bible um, in different media industries, and I'm approaching it from uh, an animation standpoint, since my background is in illustration and animation. Uh, a pitch bible is when you put together, um, it's usually really short, about like eight, ten pages, uh, but you're putting together like synopsis, photos, illustrations of your characters, but it's what you present to producers, directors, studios when you're pitching your idea. And so I put together a pitch bible um, to pitch to animation studios and see if I can't uh, get this as a cartoon or a cartoon movie or see what happens. Nice, nice. Uh, so nobody's made an offer yet. But well, no, I just finished the pitch bible. That's ah. like step one. Step one is just getting my, my ducks in a row and getting it 
tight. I mean, I spent, it's a kind of a combined effort in sorts that I had to write it and compose it um, and get my thoughts down on paper and then passed it to my wife, um, my lovely Angela, who then proofed it so that she is kind of approaching it from an outside view. I mean, I know everything makes sense in my head, but it's got to make sense to somebody who hasn't seen it before. So she had to proof it and help me organize my thoughts so that it expressed what I wanted to express in a way that's clear someone who doesn't know or have any exposure to this book whatsoever. And on the flip side, while she's doing that, then I have to draw like a madman and draw some of these uh, sketches. Some of them were characters that I have never, I haven't in, even introduced yet to the books, but they're central. So I gotta show them uh, these are characters that appear in the series or would appear in the series. So I just finished it. It's printed and it should arrive on my doorstep by Tuesday. I think is what the tracking number said. So. Uh, after that, then I have to approach and uh, see about getting a uh, literary agent to take a look at it, specifically literary agents that are interested in graphic novel properties. And uh, I got, got quite a few leads <coughs> of some that they look for graphic novel properties, and some of them even have what they call a free reading where uh, you send them your property and they'll they'll read it for free and then tell you if they're interested in representing you or not, mm -hmm. offer you the contract and then after that they run with certain digits. So nice, nice. So that'll be that'll be that's the next step for you. Next step is uh, securing the literary agent and getting them to shop it around rather than me shopping it around. Right, right. Because that'll give you more time to draw a book too. Well, I've got pages that I've been inking waiting for this chat to start, so the machine doesn't stop, man. So, uh, I hear you. Like I was telling you earlier today, I was at my brother-in-law's birthday party, and he's in a band, and they were playing, and I was upstairs inking, you know, yeah. inking and finished finish the page there, finished the page while I was waiting for you guys. So, uh, yep. I remember while I, when I was in New Orleans last, we, uh, you, were, you were working on pages while we were eating dinner. Yeah, it doesn't stop. But uh, but the, what you're saying though is, is true in the sense of um, it, it kind of it's two ways. One way of it is that yeah, you know, if I'm spending all my time pitching this and knocking on doors and making calls and emails and stuff like that, you know, I'm not working on the book, and that's what I'm selling. And uh, it's also you know, utilizing my skills on the team for what they're better used for. And, you know, that's what an agent does. An agent knocks on the doors. An agent has the contacts. Uh, their contacts know they're an agent and they're shipping a property. Me, I'm just some guy off the street. You know, everyone's got something that they're selling, but it's just having that professional representation is what opens the doors. Right on. Now, when you were, when you were, how did you come up with the idea of Matilda? Um... <clears throat> well, it's kind of a bunch of my mates uh, were working on their own comic. You know, they had one of my friends was writing it, the other one was drawing it, inking it, lettering it, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was working at an ad agency at the time, and they asked me to take a look at the project and give me some feedback. So I went to one of their meetings, and they pitched everything to me, and I asked a few questions, and when all was said and done, they said, you know, the guy that was 
the creator of the book kind of pulled me aside. He's like, all right, so what do you think? And I explained to him that uh, that I didn't think it was going to go anywhere, that, they're, that you couldn't pronounce the title of their book. It was a sword and sorcery book, and this is back in the days when Marvel had the rights to Conan and was publishing it just so that they could retain the rights. So sword and sorcery books, uh, nothing like, no one had, Lord of the Rings didn't exist, none of that stuff, you know, those, those, like it does now. Those are some dark days for Conan. Exactly, very. And uh, it was, back, I mean, you're talking back in the day when, like, it was hard, a hard sell just to get the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. So I told them, and then I looked at it from a printing standpoint and a budgetary standpoint, and they were going to get thousands of this book printed, and, you know, they hadn't, they hadn't done their legwork. And so, in any case, he took it really personally, and I understand, you know, it was his creation and stuff like that, but he uttered the words, well, if you know so much about this, why don't you do one yourself? <laughs> so I did. So you did. And... Uh, uh, it, his book lasted, uh, I think, three issues before they pulled the plug on it. And uh, mine uh, went four before uh, Katrina hit. So uh, so I, how I came up with the idea was just kind of narrowing down. Um, I just did a couple of synopsis of things, of stories that I would enjoy telling, and nar kept narrowing it down, narrowing it down, narrowed it down to three ideas and just went with this one because it was different. It wasn't going to have spandex in it, and it had. It was being designed for a black-and-white approach. I wanted it to have black-and-white and no color. So this is just the one that I picked because it just was the most appealing of the three. Interesting. <laughs> Which one's that in the background? Um, that one is Malcolm and Garrett. They're both at the top of the stairs. Malcolm has escaped. <laughs> so, you know, you guys might want to turn your volumes down a little bit. <laughs> because he's about to head back upstairs, probably forcibly. Bam! <laughs> You're going to like, start like good. Farewell. Usually it's my fault. Yeah, it's usually Steve's kids. Usually I've got kids. It's up my ass. <laughs> That's why I don't have any kids I know of. You do. You have a child. It's Matilda. Oh yeah, a, yeah. But I don't have her cutting up like that. She cuts up in other ways. Well, there he is. He's right here next to me. <laughs> you want to say hi to everybody? No. No. Okay. Now. I think Steve had a couple of questions he wanted to ask. I know I I've been do, like dominating. I have a, a new one that came up because hmm. you were you were talking about all this backstory that to totally makes sense, but it was apparent in the writing, but it, you don't never come out and say a lot of the stuff you were talking about. Right, which is great. Um, but it seems like a lot of the backstory is heavily influenced that you did a lot of research in it, like classic classical literature. And similar comics. Um, what were some of the things that you you pulled from to get this particular configuration of heaven and hell? Well, believe it or not, um, 
And I guess you got to take my word for it, or you just call me a liar. But and Rodney knows, and and it's actually that you ask because Rodney and I uh, have discussed this at length in terms of all the religious implications by. Um, but I did a lot of research, not just. I mean, I come from a Roman Catholic background. I'm, a, I'm actually a recovered Catholic, which is I don't subscribe to it anymore. So, uh, but I that's what I tell because that's what I know. But I researched a lot of different religions and pulled a lot of the similarities to it. But I can't. I, I tried initially to tell the story in a very generic sort of way, and I just found that there was nothing anyone could relate to. So I landed on Judeo-Christian because that's what I have more knowledge of. Right. And it was just a little more relatable to me. It gave me anchor points that I could talk about. And then it was just reading a bunch of different texts of, um, you know, everything that, you know, I, I looked more for dissertations that broke down uh, meanings, uh, meanings of different characters and cross-referencing them to, uh, I read this, I wish I could remember the title of it. Well, I read this one book that was comparing a lot of uh, the apostles and stuff like that to uh, Greek gods and how it was a similar pantheon. And it was comparing uh, all these different modern religions to older religions where they worship multiple gods and pantheons of gods. And they were saying, it was really kind of cool how he broke it down. So that's what I really kind of focused a lot of from the background side of it. And um, then I wanted to keep it in a stereotypical, clear, defined, this is good, this is evil, so that you knew who your good guys were and who your bad guys were. And, uh, and then create my anti-hero, who um, is at least how I was trained to write stories is, it's got to start off one way, go through a transformation, and if you really like your heroes, you mess with them hard, and they have to come out of it so that you root for them and come out of it. In um, a lot of ways, you know that's why I strongly agree that the Star Wars series is about Darth Vader, not about anyone else, because. He's the guy that went through the transformations. Getting his hand cut off doesn't count. So, so now stylistically, uh, like artistically, again, I selected the idea of I wanted to do something that I hadn't done. So something that was challenging as an illustrator, which was drawing people in normal situations, normal clothes, uh, children. You know, I didn't draw a whole lot of children, so. Uh, and demons and things that really had to force me to kind of dig deep into the creativity and force me to read and research more. So I wanted a stylistic manga-looking, without the big doe eyes, I mean manga-looking from like a Stan Sakai kind of standpoint of black and white line work, good contrast and textures. Super long fights. <laughs> well, I tried to break it up in the terms of... Uh, you know, it's all about of a, a kind of a pacing of it. That there is a story that's in there, but if I focus on just the story, it becomes this kind of slice of life comic, and I just don't think I have the chops to tell this and keep people's interest if it's just a slice of life kind of thing. And uh, 
So I gotta have the fights in there to kind of you know, put some oomph into it and make it visually entertaining. That it's like this is not only just a cool contrast of this eight-year-old girl, you know, shooting machine guns and stuff like that, but it's also Which not is there cool for, in and of itself. Exactly, but it's not there for the sake of being there. It's there to add to the story and actually develop, you know, her character and then some solidity to it. Yeah, the, the fight actually itself has an arc, which is yeah. very, very manga-esque. So it's not just like a, a, like a Batman comic where Batman beats the crap out of the Joker and yeah. there it is. Predictable. The fight, yeah. the fight escalates. Exactly. And it has a story of its own, which is... Yeah, really cool. and, that, and it, in my opinion, it has to because it's part of an overarching story. It's a chapter. And so... It's got to tie into everything else, but it's also got to, like a chapter does, in, in, in prose, you know, the, the chapter has a point of a novel right. that it's got to get across, but it's still got to tie into the other chapters of the book. So, yeah, I approach when I write the scripts the same way, is that how does this, what is the point of this battle, but then how does it tie into everything else so it doesn't look gratuitous? She actually has an epiphany during the fight, and real, and which helps drive the plot of the series as well, which is great. I don't want to give anything away because I want people to buy your book and read it. So do I. Go to the website and two <laughs> pages for free if you like it. If you want to see the ending of it? You have to buy it. <laughs> well, yeah, and and that's the other, the other thing of it again, as far as a storytelling standpoint is, is that um, the it's the characters got to learn something, and it's and it's usually more relatable if they learn it through hardship. You know, we can all it, it, characters have to have something that the re reader can relate to, and not necessarily you know fighting demons in your in your front yard, but it's you usually get your most valuable lessons when it's a hardship of some kind. So in this particular case, all her hardships have to come; they have to come. The hard way, you know. She's got to learn everything the hard way, and so that's why the third-person narrative becomes important, so that you can see as a reader she's getting it. Because if I don't have that, then it's just a fight scene. Now, um, you, we were we were talking about book two earlier. Um, any plans as to when book two might be released? <laughs> <laughs> well, since I write it, draw it, ink it, letter it, and then color it and put it together, and I refuse, steadfastly refuse to use Kickstarters or Indiegogos or anything to fund printings of these things. Um, it's it's a it's a task. I you know it takes me a while to do. It takes me sometimes a year just to finish uh, a chapter because between that and the day job and you know the my wife likes to see me. The cats like to see me. So what? Go figure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just it just takes a little time. I mean, lately I've been kind of a machine cranking things out. But uh, school starts start soon. Starts Monday. Uh, I go in for our, for our staff meetings for Monday. It actually starts in two weeks. But next week I gotta start prepping the classes for the students. And I took on an extra class because because you need to. See, so, uh, you but, have I mean, your students 
yeah. do, do the work for you. Oh, you know, <laughs> if I trusted them enough, but <laughs> I don't. So uh, It's not so, a sweat shop. <laughs> no, I really, really wish I could make it that, and uh, I have wrestled with that a lot of times. But, no, nah, it's, uh, I mean, I'm finished penciling up to page 13 of the next book, and it's got um, three chapters in it, where as opposed to the current one uh, has only two chapters. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, this one's got uh, three chapters, and each chapter is tw- uh, 28 pages. So, you know, I've actually jumped. It jumps like about 84 pages. So. Um, I've just finished penciling page 13 of 84. So, and I've actually inked some of the pages too. So, uh, right, right. So, you know, it's just it's just a process. It's just how it goes. That's it. So, uh, it's it's. I mean, I I used to really sweat it, and and I I still have some of my friends that are in the industry that are like. You know, man, you know, you lose so many viewers because you don't churn it out enough. It's like, well, you know, Daddy can only move so fast. He's got other things that he's got to do, so slow and steady, you know, wins the race. So I'm just going to just work on it and keep putting it out in good faith and load pages up when pages are finished and let people read them as it goes along. Excellent, excellent. Now, how many copies of the uh, the print version do you have available? Uh, the, I just the graphic novel that you guys are looking at um, just came out, and I ordered 50 copies, so I think I'm down to 25 actually. So my father, my father-in-law just bought his today, so There's only half the amount left, guys. So you got to get on this before they're gone. Well, I, I'm going to reprint them, but if you want a first edition, yeah, you got. You gotta get it now because the next reprint run immediately becomes a second edition. So, yeah, and that's that's it's second print. Yeah, who cares about the second print? Second print, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's number number one is the one everyone wants. Nobody remembers second place. That's right. And I, I've seen books now that are like, I think some of the Star Wars titles from Marvel have like third printing actually oh, yeah. written on the cover. You have to. So uh, I'm not going to do that to any of the books. It'll be in the small, small print. But um, you know, there are some that it matters to them. So that's why I've been stressing in the terms of promoting it. And I'm good either way. I'm going to wind up printing more books, you know, because I'm going to need them when I do shows and stuff like that. But uh, for those that it's important that they have that first edition, well, then now's the time to get it. Otherwise. I say second edition. If you're okay with that, then everybody's happy. And uh, what's the uh, what's the retail? What are you selling? What are you selling the book? Uh, I think it's twelve ninety nine for in U.S. dollars. Twelve ninety nine for what? Like, like sixty eight pages of book too, right? Uh, seventy two. Seventy two. Yep. You that is a deal, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Twelve ninety nine. Seventy two pages. It's a deal. It's a steal. It's a steal. <laughs> now I have a question about the actual printing, or because I have the electronic copy okay. of it, and um, it looks like a lot of the pages have been distressed by the artist. Yep. 
So it looks like we have coffee stains and the ends are burned and stuff like that. Um, what was the dis I have this page has like a, a rip in it. Yeah. It's it's really cool. A lot of the pages are crumbled. What what was uh the decision behind that? Um that came from both the writer aspect and the artist aspect. The artist aspect is I wanted to have something that looked a little visually different, had a little texture, a little feel to it, and I came to the concept of aged pages because also the story that I'm really telling is is it's more of a retelling than anything. So it's kind of it's got a lot of standards and. I'm just putting my spins on it. So to me, it was kind of a timeless story. It's you know about choice, about redemption. These are these are timeless stories right. that characters all the way up to or all the way back, I should say, to Homer. Um, these are challenges that they go through. So it kind of just fit that I'm retelling these timeless this and dealing with these timeless topics, and then the artist will like this textured sort of half tones. Like old newspapers and stuff like that, kind of look. So yeah, it's it's us. You know, the overall tone is sepia. Yeah, which is really cool. It, it almost gives it, and I hate to sound, because I know it's a buzzword right now. It almost looks like found footage in comic book form. Kind of, yeah. And someone else had made that comment as well, and they meant it as compliment as well. So, uh, so yeah, it kind of is. And she's telling the story from the narrative of past tense. Uh, which was something that I wanted to insert in for two purposes of one, again, the timeless part of it, the aged part of it, but also to indicate to the reader if they pick they pick up on it is like, well, wait a minute, she's telling this from the past tense. So that means clearly she survives all this, but how did she get through all this? So you gotta kinda stay tuned to see how she gets through it. Right, she never says where she's telling the story from. Exactly. So, and how she got there. So, so that's part of the kind of keep the reader's interest going. But so yeah, it, the whole look of it came from those two things kind of coming together. Of uh, as an artist, I like the look of it, and it seemed to sync well with the kind of uh, stories that I was telling. Hmm. Now, what would you classify, Matilda? Would you classify it as fantasy, horror, That's, a little of everything? It, yeah, it becomes a little of everything, and it's funny that you ask that because when you put it up on, like, when you put it up on, uh, like, say, Amazon, when I was loading the Kindle edition up or Comixology edition, you got to put the search words, keywords to it. And so that's what they ask you. What is it? So that when people are searching, it comes up. So it's a little horror um, humor, it's uh, action, it's, as I've learned, it's referred to as, it's more U.S. manga than, uh, I don't know, manga regular or whatever it is. You know, all my manga contacts are like, no, this is U.S. manga, Western manga, whatever. Yes. So, uh, Excuse me. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, but so yeah, it's got a lot of different labels to it. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, and it gets really kind of ridiculous when you're having to type in all these, you know, search keywords for them. You know, guns, demons, heaven, hell, 
you know, it's it becomes this laundry list of all these keywords so that people can find and right. an audience for it. And uh, just to let you know, there is a there there's another fan of the book, a new fan, uh, Kim from Monday Night Heroes. I know she's watching because Hello. she's been commenting on the message board. Yeah. So, hi, Kim. Hey, she Kim. Loves the book. She loves the look of the distressed pages, and he loves Baker. Oh, look at that! And That's my lovely wife. How you doing? Hey, my lovely wife. We just came back from playing. This is uh, well, he's out of camera range. I brought you a steak. This is uh, my father-in-law who just got his copy of the book today. Hey, hey. father-in-law. Hello. Yeah, the guys. You guys all go to the Lemmy Hat store, huh? <laughs> Actually, that's my hat. You know? <laughs> uh, so that the sun wouldn't be down on him today in Eureka Springs. So, uh, all, all my hats are Lemmy hats. Although my hats are cooler than you, so. Well, yeah. Well, you got the. <laughs> and that's you know that's how a lot of people talk, talk to me. They okay and and uh, shoulder shoulder shrug and he's kind of walk away. Nice. Yeah, if we had the rights to it, we'd be playing Born to Raise Hell. <laughs> that would be kind of cool to do. So you should yeah. just do a, you just should do a cover of it, and, and that's and that's yours. See, I have my jazz cover of it. <laughs> it's that's a work awesome. in progress. <laughs> <laughs> We're working on. It. I got other things to do, man. You know, work on. Yeah. And theme, theme song come later. <laughs> theme song come later. <clears throat> Sets first, theme song later. Awesome. So, uh, so that's cool that there's another fan. Uh, it's even cooler if they if they bought their own copy. Absolutely. So you know, because I mean, I say that because uh, uh, one of my favorite stories was when I was at a con uh, convention promoting the book and. This girl comes running up and starts hopping up and down, squealing. Oh my God! You know, Matilda, this is the, you're the Matilda guy. I love your book. I've read all of it. It's awesome. I was like, Oh, great! You know, did you have a copy that you wanted me to sign or something? No, no. I read my roommates. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> you're such a huge fan that you read someone else's copies of it. So exposure. Exactly. Exposure. Yeah, you know, really, it's just walk away from my table right now because I'm gonna punch you in the throat. <laughs> if you're a huge fan, buy the buy your own copy of it. Come on, help the artist keep putting it out. Well, yeah, you you read your roommate's copy. Exactly. Say, hey, you read, I like you liked book. it. You read it. You liked it, so you get your own copy. Exactly. To read it again. Exactly, and I'll sign it for you or whatever. It's awesome. No, you know, no, 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 I read mine. I'm good, I'm good. You know, then, no. You, you're you not really much of a fan if it's, you know, I'm all sorry. you got. I, I don't know. I, that's the way I did. You know, I, I've i read, you know, like, uh, my mates have given me books, and they're like, oh, you should read this. And, you know, I read it, and it's like, that was great. I want my own copy now. Exactly. Like, I give them their copy back. So I give it back to them, but I want it, because I want to reread it. Right. But, you know, I did that uh, with the Goon series recently, where... Friend of mine loaned me all these copies of it. And I read it. It's like this is awesome. Here's your copy back. I'm going down to the store and buying my own copies so I can have them because well, I can read them. I do that with music all the time. You exactly. know, somebody plays music for you, you like it, you go down to the store, you buy a copy of it. Well, not so much anymore. Um, well, that's untrue because there's plenty of music that I've gotten 
that I like, <laughs> that I w- and I want to go and support the artist, so I will go and right. buy a copy of it. Right, right, you know, I'll preview well, I mean, along and I'm, now you're. I'm not as prone to just go out and buy the new Who's He What's He album. Yeah, because it's Who's He What's He. I would like to hear it first, and then I'll yeah, go. definitely. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, in the terms of talking to you, Black like, the record store yeah. is kind of a thing of the past. Yeah, it is. And and having worked at a record store for many years, um, it just it seemed to kind of fuse together where. Record stores' last grasp at trying to draw people in was allowing them to preview music. Any any album in the store, you bring the CD up, you could preview it and listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still didn't work out for them. But the modern music store has combined these aspects where you can sit there, you can log in, you can preview a whole album if you want, snippets of it or whatever. You like it, you buy the tracks that you want. You don't like it. You don't buy those tracks. Can tell you how many times people bought albums and then returned them because they're like, "Man, this sucked. I didn't like this album at all. I want one good song on it." Exactly. That was always the complaint. There was only that one good. I couldn't tell you how many people returned Chumbawamba albums. <laughs> I believe you. Well, the thing is, though, is in, you know, in West, in the West here, yeah, there was tons of people that returned Chumbawamba albums. Doesn't happen in Europe. Chumbawamba is the is the shiznit in Europe. Yeah, well, that's Europe. That's, that's Europe. Europe. There you go. So, don't even get me started on that. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of Europe, how how how's the book doing? Do you know anything about how the book's doing internationally as far as digital sales? No, and that's kind of a a thing that me and some of my mates that are also, I mean, some of them are trying doing it like I'm doing it. And then there are some of my mates that uh, they actually work in the industry, work for Marvel, Image, DC, or whatever. And uh, so we always meet and we talk shop and stuff. And we've talked about this whole digital comic thing. And it's cool in the sense of how it's easier now for anybody now to put something out if you got, you got know, the gumption and the resource. But on the business side of it, it's a little more challenging. You know, I just got – I've just – gotten about two or three in an email exchange with a uh, comicsology who Amazon purchased and Amazon's Kindle gives you a really nice breakdown of how many books you sold demographic information where they sold that comicsology you have no access whatsoever you know I get a I get a a check from Comixology for my royalties, mm-hmm. but I can't find out how many sales I had. They could be totally lying to me. Said, "Oh yeah, you didn't sell any books this month, Ted." I have no idea. No. And then you could have been selling like Wildfire, and they're cutting you a check for. Well, to be realistic, <laughs> if it's selling wild like Wildfire, you know they're not going to bury that. They have no reason. Yeah. But um, and, and if it was selling like Wildfire, somebody else would be talking about it. Exactly. But uh, the other side of it is uh, that, and and they're probably not skimming on anything like that. Again, they would have no reason to. But it's principle of it is that you still don't know. You know, I can't see the books. I can't see how much sales I can. And it's kind of interesting. That's where the dialogue started with me between me and Comicsology. Where I was like, well, Amazon just bought you, and their interface system with the the creator 
much more creator friendly. It can log in, I can track sales, I can see where they go, blah, 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 blah. Comicsology gonna come around with something like that? How? Why is it taking so long? You know, Amazon already has it. So, uh, and you know, with Amazon Kindle, I loaded it up in 48 hours. The book was live. Comicsology, I loaded it up four months later. It went live. Wow. So, and uh, as Kim just reminded us, if you uh, go on Amazon, it's 2.99. Yes. Uh, <coughs> Kindle versions uh, are typically cheaper, and actually, I was told to put it on Kindle for like ninety-nine cents, but uh, I don't know. And it, it was from a marketing standpoint, in terms of Comicsology has a bigger market. When Kindles came out, everybody was all over them. Um, now, not so much. So uh, the thing is, you can get an app for Kindle on non-Kindle devices. Yeah, just like you can for Comicsology. Exactly. I have both of them on my phone. So when people are like, you know, so what's your book look like? I can pull up my phone and there it is, my comicsology. Here you go. That's what it looks like. So, yeah, it's cheaper on uh, on the Kindle, but I don't get as many sales from Kindle as I do from comicsology. How much is it on comicsology? I want to say it's $4.99 on comicsology. I think so. I think it's four ninety nine. I looked it up the other day. Now it's based off of you know just uh, just an average. You know, you look at other books that are black and white, sixty to seventy two pages. You know, you're just kind of looking at seeing what everyone's offering. Right. You're looking at it, it's like that guy's offering ninety nine cents for his, but he's trying to go for bumping up his sales, so it looks like he's selling a whole lot, but he's not making a whole lot of money. Whereas I'm like, i got to get this thing to pay for itself. So I approach it from my background in marketing and advertising, which is I can <coughs> I got to sell it for a price that it can pay for itself. And when people say, well, you know, digital doesn't cost, it's like tell that to the guy that was sitting there for hours drawing it, writing it, lettering it, and inking it. Yeah. Got to have right. something to it. So. Right. Well, um, plus the cost of store it and, you know, and what it takes to download and blah, blah, blah. But. Now, from a marketing standpoint, when the next book comes out, then the first book will probably drop in price because I'm focusing more on the second book. So it'll help encourage multiple sales when someone says, oh, well, that book is now cheaper. I can get it. And if they like it, they'll get the other book, which is, which is at the higher price. Right, right. Now, also, well, you know, four ninety nine on Comicsology is still a good deal because I mean, that's what that's what that's what the big two are charging for single issues on Comicsology. Yeah, I'm giving you, <coughs> I'm giving you seventy two of them. So yeah, so uh, so yeah, that's uh, again another logic of it is that I wanted it discounted enough to encourage sales of it. You know, it's digital. I you know, I get that. It's it shouldn't cost as much as Printed book, so, uh, so yeah, so I you know it's part of the marketing plan is is that when the next book comes out it'll drop in price, and because uh, you want to encourage people to climb on board that have been hesitant, and they see it in the discount rack, and you know I part of it is from that aspect as well. So, I mean I remember as a kid going to the discount racks at the comic shop and picking up books that I was like yeah. 
he's selling that for 25 cents now. Now's my chance to get it. And reading it, and it was my way to say, oh, hey, I kind of like this series. I'm going to go get some of the other, other copies of it. Or, man, I'm glad I didn't spend $1.25 on that. That was all. Bad. Now, I saw, I saw you doing this a little bit earlier, but if you had one piece of advice to give to the aspiring comic writer, the aspiring artist, it, what would it be? Uh, it would be <coughs> be realistic. It's, uh, I mean, I teach, you know, Rod knows that, uh, I teach a comic book class as, in the co on the college level end of it, and uh, it's what's one of the classes i got to prepare for this fall. But uh, they, a lot of people that are trying to get into it, they are going in terms of they want it to be this really big thing, and they don't understand that... You know, Jim Lee is, and those guys are a lightning rod in terms of, it's a million and one shot that you're going to get that bid. You know, Kirkman, you know, it's a million and one shot that your idea is just going to take off that big. And then the other side of it is, is that there are guys that I followed when I was a kid that, they were titans at that time, and nowadays, you know, they're they're scrapping for work. You know, they're sixty some odd years old. You know, Walt Simonson is doing really well, but he's doing his own stuff now. You can't get work with the big guys. It's really so. You have to be realistic about what it is the industry does, and that your idea. You got to decide what it is that you want from it. Do you want it to be this big? popular Walking Dead sort of thing, well, it better be really creative, and it better be something that people are going to want to part with their discretionary income for. You know, if you're going to do something, another zombie book, well, you know, they got tons of zombie books out there. What makes your zombie book so special? And it's not just because you're saying it's special. What is it that makes it special? And stand out from the crowd, and what's going to make it people say, I'm going to pull my wallet out and buy that. That's what you're fighting for. So that's why a lot of people say don't do superheroes, don't do superheroes, because it's so saturated of a market. That's not true. You can do superheroes. you just got to be aware. If you want people to buy it, it's got to be something that they want. And uh, you know, just be realistic about it. When I did this, it was just because I wanted to, well, first I wanted to prove to my friend that I could do this. <laughs> and I did that, and I did that well. And and I was just I want to finish the story. I like the story. I want to tell the story. And anything that comes from it, you know, people buying it, people liking it, people having me sign the books or do drawings or whatever, that's all icing on the cake. I never plan for any of that. I just plan to do this story and put it out and uh, and push it a little bit. But you know. Be realistic about what it is that you want to do. Good advice. Good advice. Now, are you making any <coughs> rounds of the cons this year? Or um, it's kind of interesting, actually, because uh, I was just kind of mapping that out. And uh, again, it's kind of you got to have a strategy to it. And that's going back to the advice standpoint. Is like a lot of people, at least in my experience, they 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 jump on. I got to do the Wizard World. You know, I got to go to Wizard World San Diego and put, put my comic book out there. And 
it's not the right market for it. You know, that's in, in, in conventions have an audience that they go to. And it's one of those things that, you know, you gotta kinda be aware of of if your audience isn't there, then you're gonna be out of a lot of money and you're gonna walk away really sad because no one can your cable and bought anything. Right. So uh, so yeah, you gotta kinda plan it out. And so I used to do like here in New Orleans, you know, I would do a lot of the Wizard World cons and stuff like that. And through my experiences of going to other cons, you know, I learned about, you know, you gotta know where your audience is and go to those shows, you know. People aren't walking around San Diego looking for indie comics. Yeah, they want Deadpool. Exactly. Yeah, they're looking. Well, they're looking for the latest Deadpool promo and uh, Deadpool trailer, Ant Man trailer. That's what the people there are going for. What's going to happen in Hall H? Right. But, uh, and it doesn't mean that San Diego doesn't have indie guys. They do, but that's not what the audience is going there for. But something like Ape in San Francisco. Well, that's you know. Alternative publishing, so that's that they're going there for indie guys. They're not going there for X Men. So uh, that's what I shop for. So I kind of narrowed it down. I wanted to. Uh, I'm not going to do any this year uh, because it's August. Most of the shows are, are really kind of done. Next big one that's coming up is I want to say New York Comic Con in October. So uh, so yeah, I'm planning on trying to hit them next year, but I want to try and hit shows that are more into the market for the indie comics. So I'm looking at, like, um, I'm looking at Ape in San Francisco. I'd like to do New York Comic Con. They, there's a lot of indie guys uh, go there, and uh, there's an audience for it. And an audience in particular of not just fans, but people that are looking to for new properties, new intellectual properties that isn't on the, anyone's radar. No one knows about it. That's one of the advantages is that people are looking for the next big thing, but you got to be in that place so it's the right place. But you got to have your stuff ready so that it's together, so that you make an impression and your product looks good. So New York Comic Con is one I'm looking at. Um, I'm looking at uh, Emerald City Con in Seattle, uh, WonderCon in, I want to say that's in Anaheim. Uh, but those are areas that not only do the audience look for indie stuff, but industry people are there looking for indie stuff as well. So we'll see what happens. So know your audience is advice piece number two. Yeah, <laughs> you got to. You know, it's and even if you know, not just from the marketing side of it, but just for the storytelling side. Right on. Man. Now, um, yep. So we've run about an hour. Okay, sweet. So. Yeah, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and sign off. I'm gonna put up this graphic real quick. Uh, here's the cover of book one. There it is, right there, Mr. Wally's lovely artwork. I love the shadow. <laughs> Again, cool. it's you know part of the you know, build the interest. What is that all about? That's kind of cool looking. Okay, let's see what the rest is about. Yep, there's the bear and her big gun. Yes, indeed. She and she has plenty more of them in the book. Oh yes, bottomless backpack. Awesome. So yeah, you now, go there you go. Available digitally, you can get it through Amazon.com, Comicsology, and the limited run of print copies are available through VoodooMaverick.com. Thank you very much. Go to the site and you can preview it for free. And if you like it, then buy your own copy. The ending isn't up on the website, so that's the other clever ploy: is that if you read all of it and you want to know how it ends, you're gonna have to get your own copy. 
There you go. That sounds like a good plan. <laughs> well, the book is about evil things, so I figured I had to do an evil thing like that as well. So, yeah. There's nothing evil about that. You're giving them so much. Well, yeah. I, I, I put about 85, 90% of the book up there for free for people to read. So, uh, you know, because I wanted to see that, I wanted to be able to sample it and kick the tires and also to see that work is being done on it, but I can't give I can't give it all away for free. So you want to know how it ends? That's the last you know eight pages of the book. And you have to buy your own copy. Got to got to buy it to see how it ends. There you go. Well, thanks well, for if you want to share it with your roommate so she can buy a copy. <laughs> right. Right. So get your own copy, man. <laughs> get your own. Just Come get your own. On. All right, so we're going to say goodnight, everybody. So, um, oh, before we do, Monday night is Monday Night Heroes. We'll be picking up Call of Cthulhu. I believe we're on session number 11 we, of Master Nyarlathotep. Uh, next week, we'll be, Steve and I will be here to discuss um, the Marvel Star Wars series. Woo! Good stuff. Yeah. Really good stuff. All right, so night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Thank you very much. And thanks to Ted for watching. Yeah, thanks. Uh, any questions, just drop me a line. Yep. We'll uh, put the link in uh, on the forum. Otherwise, we'll see you guys next time. Take care. Bye-bye.